Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 1 Samuel 21 tonight, so if you have your Bible, if you want to grab the usher's attention, if you don't, and get one. A little bit of chaos today, huh, on Capitol Hill? I don't know if you're following it, but um, I I remember back in in 2004 when um, W was uh, going against John Kerry, and, and they were con- going at it, you know, and, um, and I was 25 years old and um, didn't really, honestly, didn't really know what a Republican and a Democrat was, you know, I was young, and uh, I was working at the time on a job down in Pleasantville with a, a, a Jamaican guy named Dennis, who I've talked about before, he's become a close friend and a believer and a brother. And, um, and we were just talking about uh, election years and all that goes with them. And he just said to me, he said, you know, in, De- in Jamaica, uh, he said that, he said, this is a big deal. He said, people die. And I, and I looked at him and I said, what? And he goes, yeah, man. He goes, in Kingston. And he, you know, he said, people die, man. He, and I was like, you're kidding me. I was like, it's an election. Like, what are you talking about? Like, he's like, no, man, it's big. It's serious books. He said, you know, and I was like, I don't get it, man. Oh, that's crazy, you know. Well, here we are. (laughs) It didn't take very long. You know, that was uh, 16 years ago, 17 years ago, and here we are. Uh, And so there is some chaos. But, but, I want to read to you from Psalm chapter 2, because this is our perspective on things. This is God's perspective. He, there's no chaos, okay, in heaven right now. In the throne room of God, it is still, it is quiet. There's no noise about this at all. Listen to what he says. He says, why do the heathen rage? That's the Gentiles, the nations. And the people imagine a vain thing, for the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in confusion. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them, confuse them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So there's chaos on Capitol Hill, okay? But there's a king on another hill, and that's our king, right? So we don't look at the things that are seen. We don't place our rest or lean upon what's going on politically. We look at the Lord Jesus, and we're citizens of his kingdom, right? And that's our stability. It's our strength. It's where we stand. And then God says this, he says, ask of me and I will give you the heathen or the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. His people will come out on top. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise. Now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. That's Jesus. That means get real close to Jesus. That's your refuge right now. Lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But blessed, that means oh how happy, those that will obtain the blessing of God. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's where our strength is right now. It's where we stand. Amen? Amen. So now we get to hear more about it in Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel 21. And uh, we'll continue on in our study together. But let's just pray one last time and just ask God to... Uh, really speak to us. I believe that uh, this segment of David's life is probably one of the most relatable uh, and, and, and encouraging 
passages, things that, that God has done in the, the pages of Scripture. So, Father, we just come to you again, and we thank you, Lord, that we can do this. And, uh, Father, it's a, it's a humbling thing to stand in your presence and in your congregation. And so I just yield my voice to you, Lord. I yield the things that you've taught me and shown me. I yield to you the, uh, just the, the things that I've experienced and you've allowed me to, uh, to know of you, Lord, through these years of walking with you. And I pray now, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would take uh, this text that you authored and that you, you wrote and that you would make it living and powerful, that you would make it uh, to speak to us, Lord, in the way that you can. And I pray for every soul that's here right now in this building within the, the sound of my voice. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to uh, hear clearly what you want to say to us personally and that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand these things. We know that you will. We believe that you do. And so we ask you to do it now. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I believe that probably one of the greatest deceptions uh, that exist in the world for the human race is the deception of uh, stability or the illusion of stability, uh, that anything is actually really stable, that where I am right now is actually secure, that, that what I have, that what I possess, that that is actually safe, that it's actually uh, protected in some way. That, that any sense of tranquility that I have in a situation in my life at all, and that those conditions are actually stable and undisturbable, you know, that, that anything is actually stable. And if there's one thing that everyone knows by the time they get to middle adulthood, it's that there's no such thing as true, real stability. And we've all seen it. We've seen that those that are extremely wealthy in a moment of time, they can be brought to poverty. We see that a child who is brought up in a well-loved environment, they can in one moment become orphaned and their whole situation can change. We've seen how a secure wife can in one moment become scandalized and realize the instability of her supposed security. We see how a nation that could seem so steady, can be overcome in just a moment. And there's so little that is actually really stable in this world or in this life that we're going through. And all of us have felt the unwanted sting of unwelcome change. And always somewhere in our minds is this thing stirring around is what's going to happen next. And it's the source of all anxiety. It's the source of all worry. It's the source of all fear. And anytime we feel anxious or worried or fearful is because we intuitively know that there's nothing really stable that's going on at any time as long as we're here on this planet. Now, I lead in that way because as we're studying the life of this young man, David, we left him in one of the darkest moments of his life thus far. He's only in his middle 20s, but he had a really, really good situation. He was married to the king's daughter. He had a house with her. They were living together, married. He had a position, a good position in the royal cabinet. He was a highly respected captain. He was held in honor among the people. He was not only talented in many different ways, but he was anointed of God. He was called of God and he had been used of God. Everything in David's life was up and to the right. But in one moment... He lost everything 
because of something that was of no fault of his own, he offended without doing anything wrong a king who had become jealous of him. And in one moment, at the end of our text last week, at the end of chapter 20, he lost it all. He lost his job. He lost his house. He lost his income. He lost access to his bank accounts. He lost access to the people that were in his life that could help him, his wife, his parents, his friends. He can't go home. He can't go back to the neighborhood that he grew up in because Saul is so wanting to assassinate him and kill him that anywhere he goes, there's someone looking out for him. He is an enemy of the state and his crime is being alive. His life just changed. Everything got turned upside down. And if you've ever been in a situation where your life has gone from stable to chaos in a short amount of time, you know what it feels like, and you can imagine what David is going through in this moment in his time. And the question is, the first question really is, what do you do when you find yourself in a situation like that? What would you do if you were David and you just lost it all? You have nothing. You have the clothes that you're wearing, and that's it. Nothing else. What do you do? What does David do? We get the answer in chapter 21. He goes to the local church. And really, there was only one local church in the whole country, um, but he went there. Probably a good place to go. It says this, chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why are you alone and no man is with you? Okay, so David comes to the one place where he thinks he might be able to get some help. He goes to the high priest whose name at this time was Ahimelech. Now, Ahimelech actually has three names in the Bible. He is called Ahimelech sometimes. He is called Ahiah sometimes. And by Jesus, he was called Abiathar. So he's given three different names and they all mean three different things. Okay, Ahimelech means of the king, and it reflects the fact that he was accountable to the people, and he was accountable to the king. Now, his second name, Ahiah, means brother of Jehovah, and it implies his connection to God, that he's not only accountable to men, but he works on behalf of God. And then Abiathar, the third name that's ascribed to this man, means of plenty, means of means, that he has resources. And I love the fact that he's given these three names because those three things really do reflect the, 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 the dynamics of someone who is in a, a ministry position. They are obviously linked with God, they are accountable and there to serve man, and they have the resources, they've been equipped by God to do the things that are necessary. And so David actually does the wisest thing that he can do. He goes to the place where he probably can be helped, even though the dynamics are a little complicated because he is accountable to the king. And so he's got to walk in wisdom here, which David does. Now notice that it also says in verse one that Ahimelech was afraid at the, meaning, uh, the meeting of David. Now, why would a priest be afraid when David who is perceived by him to be faithful to Saul, comes to him. I believe it was because that was the kind of culture that Saul had created in Israel. 
It was a walk on eggshells type of place. Okay, why are you here? Am I in trouble with the king? What is Saul going to do next? And everybody knew that this guy was like a ticking time bomb. And so he's filled with fear in this whole thing. And he asked David why he's alone and no one's with him. Now we're going to find out that David isn't actually alone. Okay, because he's going to say, there's some young men with me. And Jesus, when he talks about this in, encounter uh, later, Jesus says, talks about the young men that were with David. So he comes in alone, though he was not alone, but this takes Ahimelech aback. Now, verse 2, it says that David said unto Ahimelech the priest, the king has commanded me a business and has said unto me, let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send you and what I have commanded you. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. And so David kind of, kind of, kind of, gets around the issue here. He, he kind of wants to move past answering the question. And now he gives his ask. Verse three, he says, now therefore, what is under your hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days. That has not been, that has not been what we've been thinking about uh, for these past couple of days, sir. Uh, we are okay on that. And he says, ever since I came out, and he says, and the vessels or the bags of the young men are holy. There ha- there's not been nothing defiled touching their, their, their bags that the bread will go into. And, and then he says, and the bread is in a manner common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in a vessel. I'll explain that in a second. It says, so that the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Okay, so David goes to the priest And his ask really is just for basic provisions. He hasn't eaten. He's got no access to food. And so he goes to the church pantry and literally has to ask for a handout. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in that position, but that's an extremely humbling thing to do. When you're really at a place where the only option you have to eat is to go to the local church and ask for food. It's horrible. Because you feel the sense of your own poverty. And and then you feel judged because everybody's getting in all your business. Because it happened here, right? Like, what's been going on in your life? Why don't you have any food? And are you unclean? Is there sin in your life? Like, what's the the whole thing here? And David's got to go, oh, no, it's not a sin issue. I can't explain everything. But do you got any food? And then they have this back and forth about the bread. And he says, look, here's the deal. All I have is the showbread. And here's what was with the showbread, is that every seven days, the priest would bring the loaves and he would consecrate them to the Lord. And they would sit there on the table of showbread for a week's time. And at the end of that week, new bread would be brought. The old bread would then be taken off of the altar and the new bread would now replace it. And this happened to be the day that there was a switch. And so David says, I don't need the new bread. I'll take the seven-day old bread. And it's kind of common because it's being removed from its place. Can I at least have that? And so the priest says, "Ah, as long as you're clean, all right, I'll give you what I've got. And so David comes. He gets the bread that he needs. Okay? Now, David is in this place. And I think David really needed three things here. He came for three. Number one was food, obviously. 
Number two, as we're going to see, is a weapon. He feels like if, if I could just at least have a sword, something I could protect myself a little bit. And number three, and I think this was the one that he really wanted more than the others, was counsel. But he can't get counsel because he can't get counsel without disclosing what's going on. And he can't disclose what's going on because of what happens next. Verse 7. It says, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg. Now, if you want to understand who this guy is, just take the E out of his name and pronounce it that way. And you get an idea what kind of guy we're dealing with here. His name was Doeg, an Edomite. So he's not even a citizen of Israel. He's not a covenant person of God. He's a foreigner part of a nation that is hostile towards the people of God, but somehow he has been assimilated into Israeli society and he's working within King Saul's administration. It says that he was the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. So he has a pretty high-ranking job within the administration of King Saul and he happens to be there this day when David comes uh, in need Now, what does that mean? It means that Saul had surveillance in Nob, the city of the priests, someone there to tell him everything that happened, and David understood the dynamics of having Doeg there. We'll see that again later. And so David said to Ahimelech, is there not here under your hand a spear or a sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you slew in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Now that's kind of funny because, I mean, we know that Goliath was about as tall as the ceiling above my head. And I can only imagine what that sword was like. You know, David's kind of like dragging it out from behind him as he goes out to meet the young men. I remember when, uh, when I was younger, uh, getting into snowboarding, I was in middle school, and I really wanted a snowboard, and I went to this used sporting goods place to get one, and the only snowboard that they had there was 175 centimeters long, and I was like pre-puberty, like I was probably like that tall, and I had this snowboard that was this big, but I was like, I must have it, and I remember I had that snowboard for like two years, and every single person that saw me was like, that's a little big, isn't it? And I was like, nope. I like them like this. You know, I was so proud of that 175 centimeter. But I can imagine it was something like that. You know, David's got this sword that he probably can't even really pick up, but he takes it with him anyways. Now, I want to pause here and say this, is that the hand of God is all over this chapter, but it cannot be seen in the moment that it's happening. It, It can be seen later, and that's always how it is with the hand of God being evident in a situation. It's very hard to see it in the moment, but you can see it later after everything has fallen out and you look back. And in this little segment where David goes to Nob, the hand of God is literally in the presence of Doeg, which seems to be the greatest hindrance because it's keeping David from really being transparent and really being vulnerable and really being able to get help from the king in the way that he otherwise would have. He has to protect his words. You say, well, how is that the hand of God? Here's how. There is a very important lesson that David must learn. And it's a lesson that all of the people of God will learn if they want to learn wisdom from God. And that is this, is that any attempt that you ever make to receive help 
from another human being that God himself has reserved for himself to give to you, then you will fail and that help will fail. And what God is doing right now is he is preventing David from getting help from a man whom God doesn't want to give help to David at this time. Because it is God who is to bring this help to David, okay? God is teaching David three things right now. Number one is that God is right there with David even though David can't feel him. And David cannot feel him right now. God feels very far away from David. And that's a very important lesson that every child of God must know. God is there when you feel it. And sometimes we get the privilege and the pleasure of feeling God's nearness in his presence. But God is equally as present with us when we do not feel him as he is when we do. You say, well, where is God when I don't feel him? Like, what, I, I understand, yeah, he's with me, but what's the difference? Why do sometimes I feel God and sometimes I don't feel God? Sometimes it's because feelings are fickle and there's no answer to that question. Sometimes you don't feel God because God is right there with you, not wanting you to feel him with you. But God says that he's with you always, even to the end of the age, and that he will never leave you or forsake you. And so part of growing in faith is learning how to walk by faith even when I don't feel it. And so God is teaching David in these moments that he's with him even though he can't see him, sense him, or feel him in any tangible way. The second thing that God is teaching David in this time is that he is not to rely upon anyone else but him. It's going to happen over and over and over again in this season of David's life that he will try to get some help from people and that help will fall through, fail, or not come. It won't materialize because God is the one that we're to rely on for our help and he will learn, David will, thirdly, that he cannot rely on anyone else because anytime he tries to, it will always backfire. Okay, now that does not mean that David is wrong for going to Ahimelech. He's got to go somewhere, right? When you're in the middle of something, you've got to do something. So David isn't wrong for going to him. And it also isn't false that God doesn't use people. God does use people in our lives to help us or to bless us. But the question is this. Where is the foundation of your trust? Are you really relying upon and trusting in God to come through in the circumstances that are unpleasant and painful? Or are you looking to people or thinking that the help is going to come through people in some way? And here's what we as the people of God must learn. And this is what God was trying to teach David is that always, Always make sure that what you're leaning on is strong enough to hold you up. Because the reality is, is that we aren't even strong enough to hold ourselves up when we're only responsible for ourselves. And when someone else then puts the pressure of a lean upon us to try to help them in some way, that's going to fail every time. Because man is not strong enough to be the savior of another man. Only God can do it. And we must learn to put our full trust in the person of God, okay? So David is learning this. Now, David asked for a weapon, and we know that David is actually lying here. And that's a big part of this whole thing. That's the big elephant in the room, right? Is that here David is lying. He said that Saul sent him. Saul did not send him. 
He said, he even elaborated on the story and said that the king's business required haste and he sent me this way and so I need a sword, I need some bread. He's lying. What's the deal with David's lie? In actuality, David is doing the best he can with information control. All right, if David was transparent and honest in this meeting, he would be, first of all, putting himself in great danger. He would also be putting Ahimelech in great danger and compromising his safety because he knows how psycho Saul is. And he also, number three, if he was transparent and honest, he would be slandering the king. He would have to say, he's, he's a psychopath. He's crazy. He's tried to assassinate me more times than I can count with fingers. He's nuts. And he doesn't do that. And you know, that's one thing about David that is, is, is a constant throughout, is that he never once casts a shadow over Saul. He sees Saul as a God-ordained instrument in his life to prepare him for what he has coming. And so he never slanders Saul. And that's wisdom. I hope we can learn that. And I say that to you tonight, is that if there is someone in your life, if there's a boss in your life that is psycho, that's making your life hell, or a spouse, or a friend, or a parent, or an other in your life that is making your life hell, do not slander, cut down, cast shadows on that person. Play the role of the subservient position that you're in to the best of your ability, and God will look out for you. You will come out on top if you take that position. It will happen for David, and it will happen for you, okay? Because you don't know that God isn't using that psychopath person in your life to produce something that he is wanting to do in you. So David's first attempt at getting help, he goes to Ahimelech, he comes out two for three. He gets food and a sword, he gets no counsel. Second attempt comes now in verse 10. It says that David arose and he fled that day for fear of Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, before you just think, okay, well, he just read Bible words and said names of people and places that I don't understand, okay? Listen, do you know who Achish, king of Gath, is? Well, let me ask you this. Do you know where Goliath was from? He was from Gath, okay? That means that David thought, I don't know what to do right now. I feel kind of lost. I know I can fight, but I can't fight for my people. I need to make a, a way. I need a job. Who can I go to? Oh, I know. I'll go talk to Goliath's boss, and I'll see if I can get a job killing people for him. You know, maybe he can help me in this thing. That is crazy to actually think about this. It's like, I'm going to go to someone and I'm going to say, yeah, I killed your best employee a couple of years ago, but things are different now and things have changed. And I'm kind of considering changing teams. And I'm wondering if you might, you know, maybe you could use someone like me. I mean, that's insane to think about it. You know, it's kind of like a Christian, right, who, you know, they have the legs cut out from under them, they lose their job, they fall on hard times, you know, they have a background in, 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 in medical things or a nurse or something like that. And so walking down the road, and they see a sign on the window of Planned Parenthood, and it says, help wanted. And they're like, eh, all right, I need to work, you know. It's crazy. You're going to go to the king of Gath and, and try to find help from him? Not thinking too clear, okay, and he's going to get himself into some trouble. Watch. It says, so the servants of Achish said unto him, is not this David the king of the land? And did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? 
And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. He's like, ah, uh, um, that, uh, that, uh, he doesn't know what to do. So watch this, verse 13. It says, so he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad, insane, crazy in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let spittle fall down upon his beard. And then Achish said unto his servants, Lo, you see that the man is mad, he's crazy. Why then have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so chapter 22, verse 1, it says that David departed, therefore, from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. David narrowly escapes a very precarious situation that he is in in this thing. Listen, if you are a Christian and you become discouraged because of the things that God is allowing to happen in your life, and you think that somehow going back to the world or going back to something that you used to do or something that is forbidden by God, but you don't really care right now because you're angry at God, if you think that's going to work, you're crazy. All right? It's not going to work. Because you already have too much of God in you to make it in the world. And the world is going to find you out and it's going to, you're just going to be ashamed ultimately. Beware of actually doing that. David ends up acting like a madman and he escapes this very clear and present danger that he's in. And so chapter 22, it says that he escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So they realized, you know what? If David is in a cave and he's a fugitive and Saul wants him dead, then we not, might not be that safe either. And so David's father, who was old at this time, his brothers that probably were expelled from the army or discharged at this time, they all come to David in the cave knowing that uh, we might not be safe where we are either. Now watch this in verse two. And it says that everyone that was in distress... And everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, that's a great group of people, isn't it? Can you picture them? <laughs> Gathered themselves unto him, unto David, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. This is crazy. <laughs> What's going on in this whole uh, thing? By the way, I want to say this. When David escaped from Achish uh, at the time when he ran to the cave of Adullam. You know, you've got to kind of wonder, like, what is going on inside of David when he's going through all of this, when he's feeling all this, this pressure and all this pain and all this stuff? If you want to know, you can read Psalm 52. Because Psalm 52, the heading of that psalm, it actually says that this is a mishtam, which is a type of song that David wrote when he escaped from Achish in Gath. And you can actually read David's testimony, his journal entry, when he departed from there and see it. And I just want to point, I'm not going to read it, but I just want to point out to you four things that David comes to the conclusion of as, as he comes out of Gath. He says this, it's in Psalm 52, 56, I'm sorry, it's Psalm 56. He says, God is ordering my wanderings. And I want you to just think about how profound that is. Because David's wandering to Nob, he wanders to Achish, he wanders to the cave of Doom. He thinks he's completely lost. But yet there's something deeper inside of David 
that when he gets quiet and he gets alone with God, he realizes that God is in control of the places that he's going. See, God is ordering my wandering. Maybe you feel like you're wandering in life right now. That you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, you don't know how you're going to get to what will one day be. You need to know that God is the one who orders our steps. He orders our wanderings. David knew it. He also says in that psalm that God is for me. That he realized in spite of all the difficulty that was going on at that season, he knew that God was still for him, that God wasn't against him in any of it. He says also in there that his promises, he uses the word vows, he says his promises are on me. That the promises of God that he gives universally still apply to my life even though I'm in this chaotic time that I don't understand. And he says, fourthly, essentially, I'm going to paraphrase it, he says, if I'm not dead, then God's not done. He says, God, you've delivered my life. He realized that he could have died in Achish. Gath could have killed him. Uh, Achish from Gath could have killed him. But he realized that if God preserved him through that, that God is going to continue to preserve him in his future goings. And you need to understand and know that. That if God wanted you dead, you'd be dead right now. If God was done with your life, if you were past the point of repentance or restoration, or if you just blew it too much, or you're too cold-hearted towards God or towards people, and you think he's just done, if your heart is still beating, he's not done with you. And David realized that. He saw the evidence of God's past deliverance as proof that God was going to continue with him and not leave him in this whole thing. David was remarkably faith-filled even in the midst of all this. He never doubted God's faithfulness or favor in his life. He never attributed his trials to errors or sins that he committed. And he moves forward constantly in the assurance and in the confidence that God is with him and God is still working in his life. And you know what's amazing? God was ordering his wanderings. Because when he comes to the cave of Adullam, all of a sudden, I mean, David didn't put like a business card up in the corner deli and say, if you're looking for a leader, and you're fed up with the status quo, come to the cave of Adullam. Have I got something for you? He didn't have to, he didn't do that. All of a sudden, David's in the cave, and one day some dude shows up, and he's like, yeah, I got no money. My life has handed me nothing but garbage, and I need help. Can you help me? David's like, come on in. Join the club, you know, and then another one, and then another one. And in, in, in not too much time, all of a sudden, there's 400 distressed, discontented, indebted people that are looking there at David. I am a firm believer that you do not have to go looking for your calling, okay? Your calling will find you, even if it means it has to come into a dark cave where you're hiding from the world, all right? It's going to find you. And David was a king. God made him a leader. It was in him. And there was nothing in David's life practically that would make anyone want to follow him. But there was something in his heart spiritually that inspired confidence in people that needed to be led. And that was there from God. It didn't come from David. Saul couldn't give that or take that from David. That came from God. And so David was there and the hand of God is there now saying, okay, I don't need your help to make you the kind of leader that you're going to be. I don't need your help, okay, to make you the kind of husband or father or mother or teacher or business person or philanthropist or politician. I don't need your help. I put something in you, and if I've called you to do it, I'm going to bring it to you. You just be faithful to me. 
And that's exactly what David does, and it happens for him here. It's an amazing thing that happens. Now, the hand of God is in this moment, and it's important that we recognize it, okay? Your calling, a lot of times, is like a shadow. If you chase it, it's going to run from you. But if you run from it, it's going to follow you. You can't get away from it. And so David now has these people in the middle of his distress that have become dependent upon his leadership. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if I'm David, all right, and I'm in that cave, and I'm hungry, and I'm afraid, and I don't know what's going to happen, and people start showing up and saying, can you help us? I'm like, listen, I appreciate that, but I can't help myself right now. I don't even know which way is up. I don't know what's going to happen for me in my life, and now you're looking at me? But David doesn't do that. David goes, well, I'll give you what I can. I'll, I'll try. That's praiseworthy right? Like he, he doesn't run from it. He doesn't say like, I can't do it. And I think that one of the strategic things that God does, and he does this for all of us, not just for David, is that he gives us people that depend upon us that we cannot forsake or stop helping in the moment when we're in distress or when we're in trouble. A lot of times we call them kids, right? <laughs> God gives us little dependents that we can't just check out and say like, I wish I could help you but I can't even help me right now. No, if God gave them to you, then God is going to help you to do what you need to do for them. And those things, those dependents that are looking up at you are actually the salvation of God in the dark moments because they force you to get up and keep going. You cannot look at those people that are looking at you and say like, I'm going to sit on the couch today because daddy's tired. Daddy's running. Daddy, everybody wants daddy dead. Have another box of cereal, you know. No, I, I, I can't tell you how many times my kids have saved me in the moments that I've been beaten down the most because I can't stop. I have to be responsible. One day they're going to realize all the things that I said and did for them, even they can't recognize it now, but someday they're going to realize it. And I can't have that, that I just quit. I didn't want to. It was too hard. It hurt. Listen, sometimes it hurts. I love worshiping God. Okay, I love the worship set that we had tonight. But there is one lyric that we sang tonight that grates on me every time I sing it. You probably already know what it is. That whole thing about he's never going to let you down. He's never going to let me down. Let me tell you something. If you're new to the things of God, that is not in English, the meaning of that. Okay, if letting you down means that he's not going to like forget about you if he's not going to just drop you and, and let you die, maybe, okay? But in English, we're like, I'm not going to let you down. I'm not... He's going to let you down, okay? He is going to let things happen in your life that hurt really bad, that you don't understand why he's doing it or why he's allowing it or when, when is it going to end or what's the purpose of it. That happens all the time to the believer, but it happens for our good. He's not letting you go in the middle of all that. But there's letdowns all throughout the Bible. David was let down the wall in a basket. King or Saul, who became Paul, was let down the wall of Damascus in a basket. God lets, God lets you down. But, but it's because he wants to lift you up. And that's what God is doing for David here. He's lifting him in the letdown. And that's what God does for his people. God gives David the opportunity to lead needy people in the middle of his troubled time. It's a gift. 
and God gives it to David, and David receives it, okay? Now, watch what happens next, verse 3. It says that David went thence to Mizpah of Moab. So Moab is a neighboring country. He crosses the border, he leaves Israel, and he goes into Moab. And he said unto the king of Moab, let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you until I know what God will do for me. Do you understand the importance of why you need to keep going? You can't stop when things are hard. You can't stay in the cave because God has something for you, but you're not going to find it if you stay where you are. David realizes it. He says, I need to know what God's going to do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him. They stayed in Moab all the while while David was in the hold. Okay. Now the word hold there is translated the net, the snare. It's also translated the safe place. All right. And the implication is that they stayed in Moab the entire time that David was in limbo, not knowing what was going to happen to his life. And that was a period of years. It was a period of time. But Moab, at this moment, was also a safe place for David. It was a hold in the context of that while David was in Moab, the arm of Saul couldn't reach him. He was like the Julian Assange of his day. You know, he was in a ref, in a, um, what's that called? An embassy in another country. He was somewhere else. And so it was a safe place for David. But watch this. It says in verse five that the prophet Gad said unto David, abide not in this hold, the hold, but depart and get thee into the land of Judah. So David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. So, so here's the hand of God. You ready for this? David is finally in a place where he's like, ah, I can breathe. And here all of a sudden he hears, there's a knock on the door because they didn't have DMs in those days. And all of a sudden there's this prophet. He's like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm an Israel prophet, but I'm in Moab. Oh, David, I got a message from God for you. You can't stay here. You have to go to where you're in danger. God wants you back in the frying pan. You're not supposed to be here right now. You're supposed to be there. You're not supposed to be healing. You're supposed to be hurting. That's what's in store for you right now. That's what God wants. And David goes, ah. He doesn't say, no, sorry, this is good. I'm getting three squares here. This is, this is wonderful. No, but listen to why David went. Because Gad, the prophet, looked at David. and He didn't just say, God wants you to go hurt. Here's what he said. He said, abide, that means live, stay, get stuck, abide not in the hold. In other words, David, it might feel very safe right now for you to be in this palace under the protection and guard of the king of Moab. But if you stay here, then you will be stuck in the hold. You're going to be stuck in limbo. You are not going to advance towards what God has called you to and what God is preparing you for. You will be frozen in time. And the warning that Gad was bringing to David here is don't get stuck in the hold. You have fallen on hard times. 
And so you moved back into your parents' basement, and that is a place of refuge. But be careful that you don't get stuck in the hold. You can't stay there. It's not going to be healthy for you. You went back to your old job because business dried up and slowed down, and it's a safe place to be. But be careful that you don't get stuck You got an extension on your unemployment benefits because of a pandemic, and it has helped you for a moment, but be careful that you don't get stuck. It might feel very good and very safe, but you are not advancing towards what God has made you for if you stay there. You've got to keep going. And thus saith God, Go back to the place where the pain was because I was doing something there. Let patience have her perfect work. And David, in his wisdom, says, okay, if this cat and mouse game has to go on, I'm in. David went. Now watch what happens in verse 6. We're going to breeze through the next bunch of verses. It says that when Saul heard that David was discovered and the men that were with him, Now Saul abode in Gibeah under a tree in Ramah, having his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him, fanning him and feeding him grapes. And Saul said to his servants that stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. That was Saul's tribe, his family. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, give you positions? that all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that shows me that my son has made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. That's not true. He didn't pray for David. And gave him victuals. That's true. And gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. That's true. But the implication is that Ahimelech knew what David's issue was and that he was privy to helping David hide from Saul. So the king sent, verse 11, to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, you son of a high tub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as that this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all your servants as David? which is the king's son-in-law and goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. That's the truth. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said unto the footmen that stood about him, turn and slay the priests of the Lord. Now, is that crazy? Like, you know, it'd be like, yeah, kill the priests. Just go down to the monastery and kill them all. Like, here's the priests. Right? And, and he said, kill them. Now, everybody who's with Saul is like, look, I know you're the king. 
Okay. You're, but those are the, that's the, I can't, I mean, it's God. Like these, these people work for God. Like, I, I don't know. And the king said, I'm sorry, uh, Turn and slay the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priest of the Lord. Look, it might cost my job, but I can't do that. And so the king said to Doeg, turn down and you fall upon the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priests and he slew on that day 85 persons that did wear a linen ephod. This guy was so cold and so wicked that he killed 85 men of the cloth that were unarmed and that couldn't defend themselves at all. Now, here's the thing. He didn't stop there. Verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now, did you catch it back over in verse 11, 12, and 13? Saul didn't go to Nob. He called the priests to come to him, and they came. And that's where they were all murdered. That means that Doeg not only killed 85 men in the presence of Saul, but then he went further and he went to Nob the city and he killed everything else in the city as well. That's the kind of people that Saul had around him, this man Doeg. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. I love verse 22 and 23. It says that David said unto Abiathar, I knew it. That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David realizes, if I hadn't gone to Ahimelech that day, if, if, if I hadn't gone there in my weakness, in my fear, then this wouldn't have happened. If I hadn't lied, well, maybe, I don't know, but David realized that he had a part to play in this whole thing. That moment was very short-lived because watch the final verse, our final verse tonight, verse 23. David says to Abiathar, the surviving son, he says, abide thou with me and fear not for he that seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be in safeguard. Okay, now David here owns the fault in this whole thing. And I want to say this to you, that if you are going to make it in this Christian thing, if you're going to make it as a person, a believer in Jesus, if you are a leader or a parent or an influencer or a human, then you need to learn how to deal with a mistake, okay? Yes, David had a part to play in the slaying of the priests and in the slaying of those that were in Nob. But ultimately, it was God that let this happen and God who let this happen to David. The death of the priests is not David's fault. He occasioned it. He had a part to play. His name is in the script. But it's not his fault that the priests are dead. Saul killed the priests. Doeg killed the priests. Okay? Not only that, 
Eli, who was the great-grandfather of Ahimelech, he is partially at fault. Because if you remember way back at the beginning of Samuel, when he failed to correct his sons, God made a declaration over the house of Eli, and he said that they will all be cut off. God knew that this day was coming. And so although David is in the script, it is not David's fault, all right? And so David realizes, I handled this whole thing with as much wisdom as I could. And he did, <laughs> okay? The lesson, don't lean on human help. It will always come back to bite you. And I know David got that lesson. Maybe you've learned that lesson too. But here's the greater lesson in all of this, is that if you screw up, get up, and get up quickly. If you screw up, get up, and get up quickly. Satan and people will always want you to wear a scarlet letter because of the things that happen because of you. It's just the way it is in this world, is that everyone wants to label everyone with faults, and you better walk around groveling under the guilt of what you occasioned. And people do it all the time. People walk around carrying that the reason why my kids aren't walking with God is because I didn't do enough to teach them and, and, and instruct them, and I didn't get to church enough, and I was busy doing this, and, and now my kids aren't walking with God, and it's my fault. I blew it, and they're just walking around with this big F that they just, just embroidered right on. I failed. I'm a failure as a parent, and I'm done. I blew it. I ruined it. I'm guilty in this whole thing. And other people, they, they carry this thing, and you know their spouse was unfaithful, and they carry this thing, well, this is my fault. I did this in some way. It's my fault that my spouse was unfaithful. If I had been better or more attentive or if I had played the role a little bit more, not been so withdrawn, that's my fault. I did this. I'm, uh, I'm never going to, never am I under this. I got this letter on me, the whole thing. The reason why, the reason why my kid, my kid has an eating disorder, it's my fault. I did this because I said something. I saw it and I, and I cared and it was genuine in my heart, but I said something and now there's an issue. It's my fault. I occasioned this. I did this. It's me. It's my fault. Oh, I, I, I know I had a... No, 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 no. It's not your fault. You didn't do it, okay? Your name is always going to be in the script because you have a pulse. All right, the reality is that people like food. Everyone does. And people care about what they look like. Everyone does. And it went a little too far. There's pressure that happens. It's not your fault. And some of you need to realize tonight that some of the things that have happened around you are not your fault. And you need to be able to stand up on the other side of it. David sees what happened, and it's serious. And he has the option right now of feeling disqualified and cast off from God, or he can say, I made a mistake. It was done in innocence. I didn't know this would happen, though it makes sense now when I see it all in hindsight, but I'm not going to let the call of God and the promise of God hinge upon this moment. And in one verse, David heads down, then David's heads up. And he says to him, like he says, okay, the same guy that wants you dead wants me dead. You stay with me and we'll be safe. And David says, we're going to move on from here. And you know what? God never brings it up. It never comes up again. There's no consequences for this. And David moves forward. And God moves past it. And I dare some of you tonight that are living under the mistakes of the past to stand up and say it's under the blood. 
Bobby shared with us from Philippians chapter 3 this past Sunday, and there's a profound verse. It's chapter 3, verse 13, and Paul said this. He says, I forget the things that are behind, and I press forwards towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You forget the past, and you move forward in the grace of God. That's how you handle a mistake. David picks himself up quickly, and he moves forward in his responsibility. This is a crazy season. I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be David in this moment of his life? He's living in a cave. He's got 400 losers looking at him. It's like, what's going to happen next? And it's just constant, 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 constant. Have you ever wished, maybe you're not even old enough to wish this yet, but have you ever wished that you could write a letter to yourself 20 years ago? You know, and just send it through time and like, you know, you're, you're there and, and you could just, you know, because you remember what it was like 20, I remember what my life was like 20 years ago. And I, and I felt like David, I was like, what the, you know, what, what is going on? This is crazy, you know. David actually wrote that letter. It's actually in the Bible. Because 20 years after this moment that David is in right now, 20 years, he's going to be the king. And he's going to be in the palace and he's going to have peace on every side. And he's going to have peace within his administration. And Israel is going to be running like a well-oiled machine. And he's going to be so blessed by God that everything he touches is just blessed and flourishing. And everything in David's life is just going to be humming 20 years later from this moment right now when it seems like that's so impossible. And I imagine in my mind, David, during those latter years when he was successful on the throne, that, that, that a reporter knocks on the door and says, we just want to talk to you about your life because we've heard your story and it's just absolutely remarkable. And David says, oh, come on in. I'll, I'll give you a few minutes. And, and they sit down and the reporter's looking at David and David's looking at the reporter and the reporter just asks this one question. What would you say to yourself 20 years ago when your life was crazy? If you could somehow speak to that young man who was living in a cave and wondering if he was going to make it through the night, what would you say to him or someone like him that's going through something similar in their situation right now, that they don't know which way's up and they don't know if they're going to make it? What would you say to them? And David just goes, I know exactly what I would say to that person. In fact, I wrote, I wrote that letter. It's Psalm chapter 37. It's Psalm 37. It's David's letter to those that are in the cave wondering, what do I do? How is this going to work out? I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it, okay? This is what you do if right now you're in the situation where you're saying, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why is this happening to me? David says this, Fret not yourself. That means don't become unsettled because of evildoers and don't be envious against those that work iniquity. For they will soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Instead, trust in the Lord and do good. And so shall you dwell in the land. The land is your life, your purpose. And verily you will be fed. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. What's it? What's your it? 
And he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. There's unsettled. Don't be unsettled because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked devices to pass. I wonder who he's talking about. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself in any way to do evil. For evildoers will be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they will inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, you will diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be of upright lifestyle. Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume, and to smoke they shall consume away. The wicked borrows and pays not again, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man, that word good is in italics, which means it's not there in, in the original language. Just the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the rest of the psalm. There's a few more verses that you can read. But that, David, he, what would you say? Trust, wait, rest, don't become unsettled. Wait, be patient, watch, keep doing what God has called you to do, continue to be faithful in what God has, has asked of you in terms of your behavior and your lifestyle. You keep on being faithful to God and just watch what happens. That's what I would say to the one who's in the cave. Trust, wait, rest, lean, depend upon, walk with, God. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your, your promise, your amazing ability, Lord, to do what you say you're going to do and to keep your word for every generation. And I pray tonight for my brothers and sisters that are here. Lord, as we, all of us, live in unstable times and, 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 and taste every day the unsettled world that we're living in, God, I pray that we might find a refuge and a safety and a rock in you. And I pray, Lord, that where our faith might be faltering, you would give us the ability to believe, that where our hope may be floundering, that you would give us a vision to see you more clearly. And if, Lord, there be any of us here that our hope, our trust is in something that can be shaken, that you would help us to look under the surface and see that you're there and that we would trust and lean deeper. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you would 
take your place as God in our lives, that you would be our Lord, that you'd be our Savior, that you'd be our Father, that you'd be our Shepherd, that you'd be our friend, that you would be the I Am that you said you are, and that we might know you, know your provision, your favor, your preservation, your protection, and your peace. So we look to you tonight, and we thank you for your goodness. We declare, oh God, that you are God. And may we love you with all of our heart, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.